good to be back in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll begin with chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles or your apps or whatever you're using to get there, uh, just the uh, first uh, 20 verses is where we'll be. Don't worry, we, we're going to do a big, broad overview this morning. So Mark chapter 4 says this, Again, Jesus began beside the sea. He, the very large crowd gathered about him. So that he got into a boat and sat on it in the sea. The whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen! A sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed and fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And the sun rose and... It was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell on the good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone with those around him, with the twelve, he asked about the parable. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you be, un, uh, be able to understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word was sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the one who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others were the ones sown among the thorns, and are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for things enter and choke it. They choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit thirty, sixty, a hundredfold which in and of itself is remarkable. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again. God, we just come to you humbly before you as we worship, as we share. And I just again pray that uh, your spirit does its work in our life as we ex expose ourselves to your glorious word and what it does to us, through us, and how you transform us day by day. So, Father, just uh, open our hearts and our minds to understanding today. In Jesus' name, amen just have to remember what Mark is doing um, since it's been a while. Um, if you remember, he's writing to a Roman audience, the first century Roman audience, with little or no understanding of Jewish culture. These are Gentiles. They are Roman citizens. That means something. So when we go back to Mark, you have to remember, um, this is a fast-paced book, although we're not going through it very fast. <laughs> but that's his idea. It's his style. It's Spartan in nature, if you will. It's not a lot of embellishment like John or Matthew. Uh, there's not a lot of details. And so the first three chapters, he gets their attention. He tries to get their attention by focusing on 
the concepts that would be important to Rome. So he's taking a Roman culture, if you remember, and he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm implementing this in my letter to you so they would understand it, so they would pick up on it. What was vital to Rome? What was vital to all Roman citizens? Power, right? Pax Romana, the freedom of Rome, the peace of Rome. And so Mark dominates this in his beginning of his letter, that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, which would have caught their attention immediately in the contrast that would have meant for them as citizens of Rome. There was nothing but Caesar, in other words. And to contrast that with another king, an implication of the King of kings and Lord of lords, meant Caesar was lesser. So right away he had their attention. And so he invokes their cultural ideas of popular Roman culture, and we talked about four pillars that Rome held up, four pillars of their culture that they um, were proud of, that they embellished, that they lived on. One of those was education, health care, entertainment, and competition. And so that's mindful for us to remember when we get into Mark, because he's using them all throughout the book. You'll notice when he's using them, the first three chapters were what? All about Jesus' domination over healing, health care, and dealing with spiritual uh, an enemy, the, the competition. And they would have understood that. It certainly would have been entertaining too, hence all the crowds coming to Jesus. And so we left chapter 3. Jesus has been traveling throughout the countryside. Israel or uh, Jerusalem's down to the south. Galilee's up to the north. The Sea of Galilee. He's been traveling the Decapolis all through this region of Israel, the northern region where his home base was, for over a year now. He's been preaching and teaching the, the ministry of the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom of God, demonstrating the kingdom through uh, supernatural miracles. His message has been crystal clear on the kingdom of God to them. His miracles have been undeniable. Although thousands flocked to him and saw and gathered, only a few at this point are believing. And so that's where we come to chapter 4. And Jesus changes his tactics on how he goes about doing ministry. And it's very important for us to catch that and understand that. Why? Why is it important for you and I as Christians to understand? Well, I just want to give you three principles today as an overview of what we're going to be diving into for the next few weeks. Principle number one is the parable itself. Years ago, um, Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, was famous for saying and, and masterful at his coaching back then, but he understood the game. But he was m just masterful at all these little simplistic quotes. In one spring training, he comes to the guys on the team and holds up a football. He says, gentlemen, this is a football, <laughs> as if they needed to know that. But the point was, you don't get past the basics. Don't forget the simplicity and the basics of what is going on. And this is key. And the key importance is found in verse, teen, verse 13 in chapter 4 to everything that we will pursue through the rest of what Jesus is teaching. And it's this. Do you not understand the parable? How then will you understand all the rest of them? That's his point. That's the idea. This is a parable, in other words. And so he pursues our understanding with what Jesus is giving us and how to do that. By the way, Matthew 13 and Luke 8 are also parallel passages to this. There's a little more detail in those. And Jesus is making the point that if you don't get this, if you don't understand this specific parable, the rest of them are not going to make any sense to you. And we'll get to those later. This one is the key, in other words, that unlocks all the rest. 
And so a parable is nothing more than a similitude. It's a, it's a truth of actual life, a, a physical example of a spiritual truth. It's laid down next to a spiritual truth. Something physical laid down next to something spiritual so you and I can understand it. It's a truth from life, from our human existence. Just designed to illustrate a kingdom truth in this case. Which means it has to be revealed to you. You don't discern these on your own. There is no possible way for which you to understand them unless someone from the kingdom of God is revealing it to you. Otherwise, it's just a riddle, it's just a mystery, and you'll not understand. These are more than just metaphors, more than just stories. In fact, Jesus reminds his disciples later about the leaven of the Pharisees. He refers that to Matthew 6. They're not similes or figures of speech. They're meaning behind them, a physical representation of a spiritual truth. They can be long, they can be simplistic. If you go back to Mark chapter 3 real quick in verse 23, you'll see one. He calls them to himself and, and, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. You get the picture, right? Physical example. You can't, everything I'm doing can't be, can't be what you're claiming it to be. Because if that was true... No house would stand, not yours, not any kingdom, and you can apply that all the way through. One of the more memorable Old Testament ones is found in 2 Samuel 12, which is really, it's remarkable when you read that, and I would encourage you to do so. But it's where Nathan confronts David after his sin and murder of Bathsheba's husband. So he has an affair with Bathsheba, she gets pregnant, the baby dies, and in the process... To cover all this up, one of his fighting men, Bathsheba's husband, takes the command to his superior, unbeknownst to him, with the instructions, hey, when put Uriah where the battle is fiercest, and then pull back the troops. That's just awful, isn't it? So Nathan confronts him. He confronts him with the story about a shepherd and a sheep. He confronts him with, there's this very wealthy man. He's got hundreds and thousands of sheep and this one poor couple next to him. They just have the one. And instead of going to the thousands of sheep to make a sacrifice, he takes the one. And David became infuriated and incensed and decrees that that man should die. And then what does Nathan say? You are the man. Powerful parable. Parables, again, not allegories. They don't have multiple meanings. They are specific. They are not Gnostic in their way. Like that was a battle that the early church had to deal with. That mystery meanings, and you had to have, to have special knowledge or special privileges to know certain things in that sense. But they are paralleling a spiritual truth. But in order to understand the parable, you need a cipher. You need a key. You need the code. Otherwise, it won't make any sense to you. That's principle number one that we have to come to terms with, that Jesus is the key. He is the one that unlocks spiritual truths of the kingdom of God, that they have to be revealed to you. Anything coming from you, anything coming from man, in other words, 
is Gnostic. And again, that's what they would deal with in the early church, the special knowledge that they would try to conjure up, that you can't be part of the club without it, in other words. But you need someone from the kingdom himself to reveal this to you. So Jesus is the key. Principle number two is what does that do for you? It gives you a confident perspective about what's about to happen, what's about to be said. Confidence is a wonderful thing. Confidence is true for anything in life, isn't it? When you have the confidence because of the knowledge you have, the understanding you gain from it, you move freely about that. There is confidence in what you're doing. There's this surety of life. When you understand how to make something, build something, you know, whatever that is, the learning that you, that you garner from the things that you're employed in, there's confidence built up in you, and that's the idea here. So Jesus is going to give us this 20,000 feet fly or review of how to understand this parable. And it's, in a nutshell, what's this? This is how you're going to share the gospel. He is priming his disciples for when he is leaving. He's giving them this understanding and defining how people will respond to the message of the kingdom. They're already seeing it, but they don't quite understand what's happening. And this is critical for us in our own day. To think about what they were doing, what they saw at that time, and to have the disciples, you know, all the crowds, but just so few of them still. Why aren't they coming to you? Why aren't they seeing what we're seeing? Why aren't they understanding what we're understanding? 2 Timothy 4, 2 says this, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Means all the time. <laughs> what is it? mean to preach the word reprove rebuke exhort with complete patience and teaching that's what it means reprove rebuke exhort only one of those three is real popular <laughs> but that's what preaching is meant to be that's what it's meant to do for you i once was told or heard hard preaching creates soft hearts. Softer preaching creates hard hearts. We want soft hearts. So over the course of this, if I'm offensive, I don't mean to be. I don't mean to be that at all. I just am beholden to the Word of God because I will have to give an account to everything I'm saying this morning for however long that is in my life that the Lord gives me, but I will give an account to Him. Proverbs 15, 23 says this, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season, how good it is. In other words, when you're ready to hear it, the teacher shows up, right? That's a good thing. There's a joy in that. Psalms 104, Look, at, uh, look These all look to you. Give them their food in due season. Spiritual food shows up in due season. When you finally get to a place where you recognize the need for it, What does it mean to have confidence? Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. By the way, that's a crystal clear understanding of the Lordship we just spent six weeks on that he understands. <laughs> right? As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a worthy manner of the calling to which you have been called. That's confidence. 
that's a holiness in your own life and collectively as a church body that you and I, Peter says in, in Peter, that you and I are living stones. God is connecting us together as a church body, as a temple to himself. There is no such thing as just Jesus and me that you can just go off on your own. There is a collective idea that is happening here to you and for you because of what Christ has done in you. And he's bringing us together. Colossians 1 says the same, Paul says the same thing, basically. Verse 10, walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. And here is the point he's sharing. Bear fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bear good fruit. That fruit comes from the knowledge of what God is giving you through his word. That's the elements of Christ's command and his teaching to you as a Christian. It's Related to you by obedience. That obedience is meant to produce something in you. A certain kind of fruit. The fruit is a lifestyle worthy of what Christ has done in you. And that makes sharing the gospel not only understandable but believable. When you and I go out into the world and declare what Christ has done, if what I'm saying and the reason I'm calling you to repent, the reason I'm rebuking, the reason I'm reproving, the reason I'm exhorting you to come to know the gospel, if you can't see it in me, why would you, right? I'm not sure who said this, but it goes something to this effect. Show me your redeemed life, and I might be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. That's the point. And that's the confidence that you and I receive. Well, what gets missed in this peril is the simplistic aspect of what Jesus is doing, I think. The idea of soil. This is fun for me because I spent the better part of the early parts of my life um, landscape designing. That's my degree. And there was a lot to talk about soil. <laughs> Dirt. It's important. In the church, I believe, though, many think either if the preacher was more clever, um, more culturally relevant. If we just wowed people with some clever gimmicks or overcome some consumer spiritual resistance to the gospel, we'd see more conversions. I would completely disagree based on this parable. It's the Holy Spirit's eternal work that is taking place. It's His job to do the work that transforms it's yours to sow and so when in scripture when you see mass conversions what's going on when you when you see those when you see those take place when the holy spirit convicts people of their sin that's where you see that when they're repentant when they're convicted of of what's going on in their life that the holy spirit is doing you see that at pentecost and, and they just cry out what do we do to be saved and peter responds repent and be baptized you see that three thousand souls were saved that day it says it is the work of god in other words not of gimmicks and trying to be culturally relevant or to try to sell something of that nature to break down barriers it is just the pure true word of god you see that when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says this, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work, in other words. It's the Holy Spirit work in your life. And so we come to chapter 4 with what I think is a profound parable. But a dumbfoundness on the part of the disciples 
as to why so few people still believed after all they see. Which is also good for us to know, because have you heard that? Have you had those gospel conferences? Man, if I could just see what they saw, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> Thousands of people saw this. Think about the, the Israel's coming out of Egypt, what they actually visualized and saw God's work. And what did Moses call them? You stiff-necked people. <laughs> they saw it. They saw these miraculous things. But they still didn't believe. No one denied what Christ was doing. No one denied what was happening. They knew there was a supernatural source to the universe. But who did they attribute it to? They attributed it to Satan, not God. No one could withstand Jesus' teaching. They couldn't refute it. It was power being demonstrated, and no one could, could challenge him in that way. And when you can't be challenged, what is people's typical response? When there's no re rebuttal, when you know that all you have is, is really nothing, you've been refuted completely, what do you revert to? What is all left to you? What is happening in our culture? All they're doing is yelling. All they're doing is getting emotional, right? Th that's all that's left. When things get refuted and there is no place else to go for you, all you have is your emotion and it comes out in a variety of ways. And so people just yell louder. And that's all they're doing. When truth gets separated from power, when truth gets twisted, power pushes its own agenda. We've talked about that. Jesus Christ unifies those in perfect harmony, but you and I as sinful people separate those. And when they get separated, truth is what suffers. And what does truth do at that point? It speaks to power, even at the cost of their own lives. And that's what happened in the early church. Persecution comes. So they couldn't allow what was happening to be from God. It had to be from Satan. And you can see that conversation in Luke chapter 20. And so when we left chapter 3, Jesus is saying to those who have a relationship with him, those that are going to follow, here is my brother, here is my mother, here is my family. But the crowds were attracted, they were amazed, they grew to large numbers, and everywhere he went, the crowds were superficial. All they wanted was, you know, give us the food, show us another, you know, give us a dog and pony show, show us some more stuff. Who's going to get healed today? Maybe he's going to multiply all this bread and fish again. That's what they were after. All superficial. And so they put up with his teaching and preaching to get to the food, the physical food, to see the miracles. They exploited and became a hindrance to his moving around so much that he had to step in a boat. So much so that you remember before they hindered him from, from eating even. There were a lot of superficial part-timers, if you will, part-time believers. That hasn't changed in our culture either. And it's in that moment and that culmination that Jesus is speaking this parable. So what's the intended purpose? Here's the third principle. It's twofold. First, it's a gracious gift to the believer of the truth of the kingdom of God. Verse 11 Jesus says, it has been given to you, the secret of the kingdom. I have the key, and I'm going to share this with you. 
But if not, it's a function of judgment to the unbeliever. Because he says, for those outside, everything is going to be in parables. And that's rather harsh, don't you think? Did you, did you hear that? In verse 12, Jesus quotes Isaiah. Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this confrontation from God. He, he sees this, this vision of God filling his throne and filling everything up. And immediately Isaiah falls down and, and he, he's confessing his sin. I, you know, I've seen the Lord. You know, he's basically cursing himself because he knows he's in trouble. I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner, in other words, which, by the way, is the correct response <laughs> when you see the Lord, when you get confronted, not to get all emotional and holler and scream and shake your fist. And so when you read chapter 6, God takes care of his sin for him. And to the end of that conversation, verse 9, he says this, God says, who will go for us? And God sends him out. But he says this, you're going to keep saying this, you're going to keep preaching the kingdom, but on hearing, they won't understand, and on seeing, they won't perceive. And that's the text Jesus is referring to in verse 12, that they may indeed see, but not perceive, that they may indeed hear, but not understand. Why? Did you hear the, what he's, the why? Lest they should turn and be forgiven. I thought that was the point. Isn't that the point? But it's either a form of grace to the believer or judgment for the unbeliever, and that was the point. Both of these purposes refer to the state of the hearer. Either you believe or you don't. There is salvation, in other words, or judgment to you. And you have to remember that faith, Scripture says, is a gift and because that understanding that you have as a Christian, you're not allowed to begin, remember, pop your collar and go, hey, look at me, look how good I am. You're not allowed to do that. There's no possible understanding for you when you understand what Christ has done for you. That, that is even remotely possible. What are they hearing? Well, let's just look at this parable really quick. A sower went out to sow. Who's the sower? This is really important. Please notice this sower. What do you notice about him? Or her? Nondescriptive. Just a sower. It's common. It's commonplace. They would have seen this happen all their lives. They would have known, oh, I, I saw that. In fact, they were out plowing the other day and sowing seed by the end of the week, right? Well, we see that today, just in a different form. They would have plowed, they would have prepped fields, they would have strapped bags to their, you know, to their back, they would have slung them over their shoulder and started broadcasting seed every year, every spring, every time they would have seen that. In fact, maybe Jesus was doing that now, and he's pointing that out. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 3, the one who plants or waters is nothing, but God gives the increase, God gives the growth. The sower is indescriptive. Or if you prefer the term gardener, that's fine. It's not important who it is. What's important is that it's being sown. The word is being sown. Your personality has nothing to do with you other than the fact that you're being obedient. 
that you're a sower, that you're a gardener. That's what's important, that the sower is sowing. Who is the sower? You. Me. All of us who would name the name of Christ are sowing. And we know that the seed is the word from verse 14 in our text. It's the word of God. So it's having gospel conversations. That's what sowers do. They spread seed. You glorify God in your obedience by just broadcasting the word to everybody you come in contact with, where you live, work, and play. That's why we describe it that way. That sums it up, doesn't it? If you're still working, it's a blessing of retirement. God bless you all. <laughs> but I've noticed that life just doesn't stop for you if you've retired. In fact, some of you are like more busy now, you tell me. <laughs> but the point is, God's bringing people in and out of your life all day long, wherever you're going. Sow seeds. Be mindful of gospel conversations. Sow the seed. It's indescriptive for a reason. It's the implication of your life being expressed that way. That God has redeemed your life. And you speak about the Savior that you know and who knows you. Where does the seed fall? Four types of soil. You could actually say six. But we'll save that for later. But let's begin with the path. That's the first type that Jesus points out. Typically, when you, when you go back... Uh, there were no fences back in, in Jewish culture. There was no walls or anything like that. There was just fields. And those fields had borders or border boundaries. And people would travel those. That's where they traveled all the time from place to place to place, from house to house. It would have been about three feet wide. They're about hard packed and they were used by everybody. Today we just call those country roads, right? They're just dirt roads. And we just had a system of, hey, let's do this thing called a mile and mark it out. And it's really convenient, isn't it? <laughs> but this is just what they did. Paths were uncultivated. They were dry. They were dirt. But they were hard as pavement, baked by the sun. Add a little water, dries out, and pack it down some more because you're walking on it. And Jesus makes the connection that this is descriptive of someone's heart. He's describing a real person who are those in our culture that represent a heart of a path? Anything come to mind? Those that are totally closed to hearing the word or really wanting anything to do with God? Have something in mind? Someone in mind? But notice that it doesn't matter. The seed is still sown, right? You don't and I don't get to write them off. The only focus through this whole process for you and I as Christian people is so. That's it. You don't and I don't get to make the, oh, I, just, I don't know if I should say something because I don't know if they'll like me. That's not the point. The point is you and I sow. That's it. You and I don't judge the person of whether they'll receive it or not. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how many connections it's going to take for someone to be transformed in their thinking and in their heart. It may take their whole life and then all of a sudden someone says something and it might have been the hundredth or thousandth time they've heard it and then God saves them. Right? And you're just sowing a seed. How I used to tell students would, 
just put a little pebble in their shoe. Just don't make them mad, just kind of irritate them a little bit. Uncomfortable. To make them think, in other words. But so, he continues, Jesus does, with the rocky ground. And in Michigan, we were very acquainted with that, especially just ask any farmer. (laughs) My sister-in-law's dad had a farm when I grew up, so I worked there in the summer. And he just would, I don't know what it is about Michigan soil, but I think it grows rocks. (laughs) And so guess who had to go pick them? (laughs) Yep. I did not know that they had a piece of equipment that actually picked up rocks for you. (laughs) I just walked in front of the bucket while he's driving the tractor and pulling over and picking up rocks. But there's lots of them, isn't there? And there was in Israel's day. But that's not the rocks he's referring to. I had that picture for a long time. Farmers then, just like now, don't leave rocks in their field. Does too much damage to the equipment. Breaks too many things. Has the potential. This rock is a reference to something else. More of a bedrock, if you will. Something a little farther down. Elongated sections of rock underneath the soil. Limestone, if you will. Just below the depth of the plow. You're plowing and everything looks good. It feels good. You're not running into big things, breaking discs and breaking plows. But it's far enough under where it gets missed. It looks really good. All the nutrients are there in the soil. And it comes up really fast, verse 5 says. Looks good on the outside, but just barely. Because what does verse 5 say? It has no depths of soil. You can't grow things very well. Why is that important? Why do you need deep soil, loose soil? So the roots can go there. So the roots can get the nutrients they need, the water. Without that, there's no long-term development, in other words. It only goes so far and it hits something hard and the roots will just go sideways. And then the sun comes up and what does it do? It heats the soil up. What's it going to do to the rock? It's going to heat that up too. And it can't sustain itself. I used to joke when we had our landscaping business with our guys on a crew, it's like, look at. I know how to get grass to grow on asphalt. (laughs) You can do that, by the way. It's not too hard. Just give yourself enough water, enough fertilizer. It'll grow. Get it to germinate even. I mean, you you can. It's not hard. Seed's going to do what it's going to do. But the moment you stop watering it, and the moment you have to quit fertilizing it, because now you have to juice it up so much, it'll die. It'll wither can't sustain itself. There's nothing there for it. Third type of soil is thorns and thistles, weeds. All looks good, too. Those get all plowed up, don't they? Every garden that you've had, you stir the soil, and it looks so pristine when you plant those seeds in those rows, doesn't it? And doggone it if those weeds don't come up a whole lot faster, don't they? Man, they just pop up. What's the worst thing you can do to a weed besides kill it? (laughs) Just try to pull it and break it off, don't you? Those dandelions, they just shoot out more roots. makes it harder for you to get next time. 
but it'll come right back. You break the top of those, they just keep coming back. Pull crabgrass and break it off or rototill it up. You've just chopped up a thousand plants for it to grow. <laughs> you got to get all of it, in other words. You just throw your seed down and just under the surface, all those dormant weeds are just sitting there waiting waiting for that light spring soaking rain to hit them, waiting to come up screaming out of the ground while the seeds is just barely germinating. And so it becomes a competition. It becomes a competition of who's stronger. The stronger of the two will always win, whether it be weed or seed. But in this case, the weed squeezes out the life of the seed. It takes all the nutrients away from something desirable. It takes the water, it takes the sun, shades it out. There won't be any room, in other words, for what is desired. Finally, you have good soil, what you're looking for. Here's what I would argue. There's at least three kinds of soil. However, Jesus doesn't mention it. How so? Ask any farmer. Not every field they plow, plant is the same. They have different locations, different nutrients. They, they treat them differently. They're not all the same. They don't produce the same equally. No field does. And Jesus makes this amazing statement in verse 8 that some produce 30, 60, 100 fold. And there is the shock to this parable. I should have asked Bob. I did talk to Jared a little bit, but you know, a, a, an acre or a wheat field or whatever, 50, is 50 bushels about right? I don't know. No. How much is it, Bob? 80 on a good year, multiply it by 3, multiply that by 60, multiply that by 100, would that be good? That'd be a good year, wouldn't it, Bob? <laughs> I'd say, wouldn't it? That's the shock value that Jesus gives here in this parable. That would have been unheard of. Even in the psalm Jacob read this morning, when you are in the good seed, when you're growing, this is a supernatural effect, in other words, on what's going to happen. In verse 12 of that psalm, uh, he says, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. That's what good seed does. You're confident again. You're producing 30, 60, 100 times of what is normal. That's the kingdom of God. That's the power of God in work in your life. Isaac sows seed in Genesis 26 in the land and reaped that same year, 100-fold, because the Lord blessed him. That's the point. It would have been unheard of. And the disciples would have come to know and see this very thing when you get to Mark chapter 6. And we'll get there someday. They saw it this way. How many loaves and fish do we have? How would they, how would they do that? How are you going to feed 5,000? Physical example of a spiritual truth. See it? That's what is meant to happen. How many were at Pentecost? 3,000. What did it all mean? It means there's power in the word that is being sowed into the soil. It's not about the sower. The seed is always going to do its job. This, there's power in it. You sow it, it grows, it does its thing. It is meant to do what it's meant to do. But this is all about soil. This is all about 
the gospel. This is all about those conversations and the people that you're going to run into in the course of your life. What does it all mean? Nothing in your unbelief. See, Jesus gave them at this point the full, clear, undeniable, understandable revelation of the kingdom of God, and they rejected it. So it now comes to them as judgment. It is either a gift of grace or it is a judgment on you. And so he's using parables. You're not getting any more revelation, is what he's saying. You're not getting a mere clear understanding because you don't believe and because you don't believe you can't. It is a hardening of your heart. Remember when Jesus sends out his disciples two by two? He says, if you're not received, what does he tell them to do? Take the dust off your shoes. It's a different custom. We don't really have that custom. (laughs) But take your sandals off and wave them in the air. In other words, your sin and your responsibility is on your own head because you now know. You know. We don't really do something like that here in our culture. But Hebrews gives fair warning. If you are here and you hear the gospel and you continue to reject it over and over and over again, you're just here be- for, because, you know, I don't know, you want to raise your kids in some morality or have some kind of morality in your life, but if you keep rejecting the gospel, Hebrews 2, 3 says this, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to you by us who heard. In other words, there isn't another, there isn't anything else that can be said. It's all been said. Choose whom you will serve this day. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And if you're here hearing the gospel over the kingdom of God over and over and still rejecting, still holding back, still not submitting in to the lordship of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for you, only judgment And so Jesus says at the beginning of this, listen, hear, pay attention. He uses that at least ten times, a dozen times through this course of his his teaching in Mark chapter 4, verse 3. Listen. That's how it gets translated for us. But hear this. Hey, listen up, pay attention. If you can hear this, hear this. Because if you can't, it is judgment to you. You will come to terms with a just and holy God. So the point is, in your unbelief, you can't. Like Pharaoh's heart being hardened by God. So hear. Repent. Repent of your sin. Be baptized in his name. Don't neglect the only salvation that has been given to you. Today is the day of salvation. You're not guaranteed another. Which is it for you this morning? Is it grace or is it judgment? I would encourage you to let the love of Christ and his word wash over your mind to restore your souls. To let go of your pride. To let go of your fear. And come to him in faith. It is a gift. If it is grace to you, then sow seeds. As you leave today to glorify God with your life, pursue a gospel conversation with a neighbor, a friend, somebody, sow seeds. Be liberal. 
in your sowing. God will reward you. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. And Father, we just scratched the surface really quickly this morning of what you have in store for us in these words. And so, Father, thank you for the confidence that your word brings. Thank you for the confidence of knowing you, to have the understanding to be kingdom-minded, to have the confidence to share our faith, to be good sowers, to be faithful in it, to enjoy it, to come along and find someone that we can disciple. Father, this is a fulfillment of what you've shared with the disciples as you left, to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. So God, let us be good sowers. Father, I continue to pray. There is someone here who has not received the salvation, so great a salvation. Maybe their heart is like a path. For whatever reason, it's been beaten down. And maybe, maybe it's just rocky soil. Looks good. Looks good on the outside. And they come to church pretty faithfully. But in their heart of hearts, there's no, no real faith there. Maybe there's someone here who's just so consumed with the things of this world and the stuff in it that their salvation is getting choked out day by day. But Father, no matter who, only you can change the heart. Father, I pray that we have ears to hear and a humble heart. Father, let us be a church that lives in humility each and every day. To be confident in the word you've given. To glorify you with our lives. And remain humble through it all. In Jesus' name, amen.